1: everybody and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm David Hamilton Golland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Nolan Gasser about his new book, Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. Nolan, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much, David. It's great to be here.
1: I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, well, i um... I have been a musician as far as I can recall, even before I can recall. I started playing piano when I was four, had my first gig when I was 11, started composing around that time. So I've never had a time when I didn't conceive of myself as a musician, but I've always been pretty eclectic, um, even from the very get-go. My first gig, I played in a shopping center in my hometown of La Mirada, California, in Southern California. And I played on weekends, and so I'd have people come up and say, hey, can you play uh, Scott Joplin, can you play Mozart? Can you play sound of music? And of course, every uh, every time they asked me to play Stairway to Heaven, it was the mid seventies. <laughs> um, and so I learned two things uh, right from you know my early stage of my career. One is that if you wanted to be a successful musician, you had to be able to play a lot of different styles. And also, on some level, although I didn't really register it, I, I recognized that people have different tastes. Some people love Mozart, some people hate them. Some people love Led Zeppelin, others not so much. So that must have really been a formative uh, experience, but I really, you know, got very much into, you know, rock music was a huge Beatles fan, but also I love jazz and early jazz in, 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 in the beginning and played in a Dixieland band. And, but I was also drawn to classical music I Had an uncle that was a, a pianist and an aficionado and really, uh, really in, uh, you know, in, imbued in me a, a deep uh, sort of reverence for, you know, the old masters, especially of the Baroque era. Um, and so I wanted to be a composer. And so I ended up uh, getting an undergrad at Cal State Northridge in composition and piano. And uh, really thought I was going to pursue being a serious composer. I wanted to be, you know, the, the next Stravinsky or something, you know, a, a minor Stravinsky. And so, like a lot of composers, American composers, um, I headed to to Paris, right? A long tradition of American composers going back to Aaron Copland, studying in Paris, uh, famously working with Nadia Boulanger uh, and at Fontainebleau with the the chateau there. By the time that I got there in the late 80s, um, she had passed, but she was succeeded by another female composer named Betsy Jolas, who was an assistant of of Messiaen, one of the grand masters masters of, uh, you know, uh, post-World War II um, music in in France in particular. So I worked with her and again was on my path to become a, a serious, you know, a composer. And of course, music, Serious classical music, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, was pretty austere and the audience pretty limited. And that always in some ways bothered me because I always as a performer, I loved the, you know, to engage the audience and I knew that it was a somewhat limited, uh, you know, crowd that would love the high dissonance and sort of you know, occasional stringency of the, of the timbres. But, you know, that was, you know, I wanted to be a composer. So that's what I was pursuing. But early in my stay in Paris, I discovered or I bought a CD, Uh, this was the late 80s, and CDs were still kind of new. And it was the, I picked up a a CD of five and six part motets by a Renaissance composer named Josquin Desprez, who was a contemporary of, of Leonardo da Vinci's. And I'd heard the name like in a music history class. And so I just picked it up. And really, almost from the first moments, I was just transfixed. And it really did kind of, it was one of those things that you know, change my life. If one CD can change your life, that, that one did for me. Um, you know, Jóskán is an absolute master composer, as I, you know, came to learn, and really every bit as a genius as Beethoven and Bach and any the other composer you'd like to, to to name. But because this period is, you know, it's an older style, it's an older praxis, if you will, and it's just generally vocal music. Uh, he doesn't have the, and his contemporaries don't have the, you know, the the, the celebrity and the the that sort of recognition. But I needed to understand this music. It was so, it would move me so deeply and it was so beautiful, but yet it was different. It wasn't like anything that you heard in Bach's music. Yes, it was contrapuntal, multiple voices at once, but it was operating on a different plane. And ultimately make a long story short, that ended up leading me to get a PhD in musicology from Stanford. And so I did, um, get that degree in in 2000 and you know was still continuing to compose and and all that but thought that my career was heading into academia and that was you know fine but right as I was graduating uh I got uh, conscripted to a new startup music technology company which was kind of a new <laughs> combination of words uh, around that time for me anyway And the company was called Savage Beast Technologies. And it it had just gotten started. There were three founders. Sadly, I was not one of them, uh, but I was like employee number three. And the idea was to make better music recommendations by going deep and analyzing the music. And they came up with this idea of the, the name, the Music Genome Project after the Human Genome Project, almost kind of tongue in cheek. But none of them were trained musicians. So they needed somebody who had a background in analysis and could do that and someone who was eclectic so I was at the right place at the right time and ended up leading the whole operation at, at uh, Savage Beast, um, and built and, and I'm the architect of the music genome project, the, the different genomes that make, uh, that make that technology work, and um, built up a whole sort of genomic operation, which is no mean feat, because all of the songs had to be hand coded by trained musicians in different you know styles. If you were coding, you know, a, a, a Thelonious Monk song, you need to be a trained jazz musician. If you were coding the Beatles, you needed to have a background in, in, in rock. If you're coding Mozart, you needed to be a classically trained musician. Um, and so it was kind of a crazy notion to do this. And initially it was a tough business, but then in 2004, finally realized a, a way of you know, being successful in the marketplace, and that was to go directly to, to uh, consumers through internet radio. And, of course, the company then became Pandora, um, initially as a sort of a, you know, just a temporary name and became the name of the company. And uh, so never my wildest dreams that I imagine I would be part of a real, uh, you know, revolutionary technology company. We were just at that right time. The industry was change changing people didn't necessarily feel like they needed to buy a whole album for two songs that they liked. And, you know, how do you make, how do you get good recommendations? You know, Amazon would, would say, you know, if you bought this other people who bought, you know, this Justin Bieber album also bought, you know, something else. And so you should buy that and not based on what's intrinsic to the music itself. And that's the nature of the music genome. So, um, You know, I stayed with Pandora till about 2010 and in those uh, sort of succeeding years, uh, got myself involved in other genome projects and got back into composition and wrote an opera for San Francisco Opera and wrote a musical, which is on its, hopefully on its way to Broadway called Benny and June. And and then... um, I did a film score and the agent I was working with called me up and said, you know, our our uh, our agents, our, our book agents want to talk to you about writing a book, uh, about your experiences at Pandora and anything that you'd want to write about. This was, I think, 2017. And so that became the book, Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste, which was um, happily published in 2019 by Macmillan, and is, now that the pandemic is over, is coming out in paperback um, in the spring. And so, uh, it's just a little bit of an example that one never knows where one's career is going to go. Uh, I continue to wear a lot of different hats, continue to compose a lot of different projects. Uh, I've got an album coming out of world and you know uh, Western uh, collaboration music. Um, and uh, working on a new startup company, which is taking kind of a little bit of the sort of genomic idea, but for film and television. So <laughs> lots of different conversations we could have, but I know we're here to talk about music. So I'll, I'll stop there.
1: Very exciting. Thank you. Um, the book is uh, Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. Uh, and so my next question may be fairly obvious.
0: Why do we like it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've i got a book to sell you if you want to know the answer to that. Um, yeah, I mean, um, it, it obviously is a very complex, a very rich, uh, question. That's why it took me 700 pages to answer it. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors, it really is uh, almost a little microcosm of who we are as people, what is, uh, you know, why do we like anything, you know, where does our, especially from an aesthetic standpoint, where does our taste come from? Uh, One of the things that the Music Genome Project tried to get at is, let's not pay attention to, you know, who the artist is, you know, the fact that it's Eric Clapton, and he's world famous, and he's won Grammys and Hall of Fame and all that, or that it's on, you know, Capitol Records, or or that it was produced by this, you know, famous producer, or that it made lots of money. Um, Let's just look at what's going on under the hood of the music. Uh, You know, what is the harmonic language like? What is the melodic language like? Uh, What is the instrumentation? How are the instruments used? Um, You know, what is the formal structure of it? All those, you know, again, analytical, musicological elements, because... We all love music. One of the things that you know I really came to, you know, to understand and and take seriously is that you know we are a musical species. Music has you know been part of humanity since the very beginning. We, there's really no culture on earth that doesn't have its own musical uh, repertoire and and passion and integrated into rituals. So we all love it, but unless you have a training in it, unless you really, especially on a on a theoretical level, you can't really, you know, talk about it in ways that are, that are sort of easily discernible, especially things like harmony. We all experience chords and chord progression, but if you're not trained in music and understand, you know, tonality and major and minor and augmented chords and all the technical stuff, you know, you're hearing something, you know, you like it, you know that it sounds tweaky or cool or whatever it may be, but putting it into words, you'd have a hard time. So a, a lot of why we like it is certainly based on those underlying musicological elements um you know I break it in the book into you know the different parameters of of melody harmony rhythm which is obviously a very vital portion of of the musical discourse and Certain rhythm, rhythmic uh, elements we can really resonate with. If it's in four four time, we can find the groove. If it's in you know seven eight time, if we're not used to it, we have a hard time clapping. Um, uh, so rhythm, and then um, uh, so uh, harmony, so melody, uh, rhythm, uh, harmony, um, form which is in many ways a real critical element that we don't necessarily pay attention to. And then sound. So I break all of these down in, into their, you know, their technical dimensions for a non, a non-trained musician to try to get a better sense of why you may like, you know, if you like the, uh, you know, the talking heads, you know, maybe you'll like television and and here's why, here's some of the musicological elements. But, that's really only as I really began to discover uh, and learn for myself and explore in the years after Pandora, uh, through lectures and different articles that I wrote, but especially you know, lots of books and articles that I read. Not least while writing, you know, preparing to write the book. Is that it goes much beyond that? There are elements of our of our psychology. There's elements of, the, of our of actual brain, how our brains work and memory works, and uh, and different you know process, different pro- parts of the brain, the frontal cortex, and how we process uh, you know sound, the higher learning. Uh, it's also really our evolution and uh, our um, uh, you know our history as a species. It's the history of tuning which is something that I didn't really think about much before. It's a kind of a technical thing, but the way that we've, un- that we understand how like the notes of a piano, we take it for granted now, you know, that there's 12 notes in an octave, but, that's really a, um, a sort of human construct. Um, and there are, there are natural elements of sound that we've gradually, over the centuries, you go back to the Middle Ages, to the Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution in the 17th and 18th centuries, we began to un- understand elements of sound that actually change the way that an instrument could be tuned or voices could be tuned. That has a big impact on why we like it or not and the other, and the final thing, and and I'll leave it here for, you know, to carry on the conversation is, is culture. And that's why the book is called science and, and culture. Um, culture plays a huge role, our, our overriding culture, if we're, you know, raised in the West or if we're raised in China or India, but also those many, many subcultures that we reside in out of, out of affiliation or out of passion or out of whatever it may be that kind of define us and give us permission to explore music. So we can talk more about that. But as you get a sense, it's not just one thing that is why we like it.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Um, And so let's get into the culture in a moment, but let's, uh, I think, double back on some of that science first. Um, Can you give us sort of a definition of the Music Genome Project?
0: Right. Well, it's a it's a metaphor, uh, and some you know people rightly you know wins at it. I was just talking to a medical doctor. I love what you did, but I don't like that name. <laughs> um, that, but I actually, even though it was tongue in cheek, because again, in, in the year two thousand, the Human Genome Project, which was like then fully funded, was like a big deal. But I I actually really took it seriously again as a metaphor. Um, the idea that. What so if we take the human genome? We have about 20,000 genes that make up our species, and we all have the same 20,000 genes split into our uh, you know, uh, 26 uh, chromosomes, and um. It, it, the, who we are as individuals, physically, uh, so, you know, intellectually, psychically, psychologically, and so forth. They are a product of how those 20,000 genes in very complex ways are expressed, you know, by proteins or whatever. Again, I'm not a, I'm not, not that kind of scientist. And so, uh, that's why you are, you know, you, David, are most closely aligned uh, in your, the way that your 20,000 genes are, are expressed to, to your parents, right? As well as to your children and maybe siblings, right? But you're less, you and I are less, we're, we're not directly related to the way that our genes are expressed, but I'm sure that we share many things in common in our taste for this or our predilections or allergies or whatever. And so the idea is, if we could think about music almost like a biological species, and what we did is we took in each individual species of music, if you will, so the rock species, the jazz species, the classical species. Again, it's a little artificial, you know, admittedly, but if we could say, okay, let's listen in the rock, for the rock species, we want to be able to properly. Identify and code everything from, you know, Buddy Holly to the Sex Pistols to, you know, the Moody Blues to Elvis Costello to Taylor Swift. I mean, anything that falls in the rock from the simplest. Uh, to the most complex to every, in, in every era as much as you can same thing with jazz everything from you know King Oliver uh, to Witton Marcellus um, and everything in between if so what are all of the genes what are all of those musical factors based on these parameters of melody harmony rhythm form sound you know uh, lyrics as well obviously Um and what are all the factors that we need to kind of take into account? And then if we could figure out how in each individual song those genes are expressed, well, now we can actually make very interesting comparisons. We can see songs, two songs on the same album are probably, you know, by the same band, by the same composer, same instrumentation, you know, probably are very much like you and your parents, you know, very similarly expressed. But even two songs by two different bands from two different eras will still have, um, g- you know, genes that they share in common, certain approach to to harmony, you know, cyclic harmony, or certain look, approach to syncopation and rhythm, or certain use of, you know, ostinatos, you know, the, again, these technolo- technical dimensions. Um, And so that way we can kind of make interesting comparisons. So if you like this song, here's something closely related that you might like, but here's something not so closely related, but it shares, at least in the big picture, but it shares some expression of the same genes. And so that's, again, it is a a metaphor, but that's, uh, I think, ultimately... Why it's been successful, because I think it's taking this notion of music analysis seriously and finding a way to compare uh, songs and and, and works um, that are both, you know, similar and dissimilar and finding ways to actually compare and contrast in, a, in an objective way.
1: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, and so what is a musical genotype then?
0: Well, I so the musical genotype is something that I just coined in the in the uh, book as being you know, and and what I mean by that is that each of us has a genotype, um, sort of an expression of our of the genes that of of, of the genes of our musical taste. So our genotype, like my genotype would be something that really um, has a strong predilection for counterpoint, has a strong predilection for uh, cyclic harmony, uh, for, you know, interesting, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of metric, um, uh, you know, combinations, uh, certain types of instruments, certain combinations of, of style, certain... And, and, and a disinterest, my genotype is, you know, I'm not a huge fan of overly, um, uh, you know, g- kind of distorted guitars, for example, or, you know, sort of virtuosity for, for virtuosity sake. Um, so those things that are not necessarily tied to one piece of music, but that, that kind of explain broadly where my taste is. And so each of us kind of almost has, you know, just imagine, you know, here's my set of, you know, genes. And then every single song that I hear, you know, could plug into my genome, my, my genotype. And, you know, if I could know that in advance, I would say, you know, I would really like this one. I probably wouldn't like it. I wouldn't like that one and so forth. Keeping in mind that our genotypes are never static. You know, we're always evolving in our taste. And ours, also, our taste is contextual. And one of the things I explore in the book is recognizing that, you know, we don't just love, you know, one, you know, one song or, you know, or a set of songs all the time. Um, we may like them in certain contexts. You know, when we work out, when we're on a walk with, you know, in, in the forest, um, while we're doing homework. And so, our genotype is is that combination of where our taste is. And the reason why I bring it up and the a reason why I think it's important is the more you can understand your genotype and understand, okay, what are those elements that I like? Again, not thinking about you can, you can reference particular songs. Um, uh, But, you know, understanding what are those musicological and other, you know, expressive type things that are part of our taste, the more you can be a little bit open to exploring new content, maybe even from different cultures uh, or different parts of the musical universe that might plug into your genotype in a positive way or those that you care about. So when you're making a recommendation for them to or you're wanting to buy them a, a, a Christmas present.
1: So let me drill down on this just a little bit, because you talked about your own genotype and, and counterpoint and some of the other uh, characteristics that appeal to you. Can you give me an example of two pieces of work that are in completely or seemingly completely different genres that both appeal to you at, at a particular time and then perhaps two in 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 varying, in varying genres that don't appeal to you?
0: Uh, you in certain contexts, you mean?
1: Yeah, in in whichever context you choose.
0: Yeah, well, so I'm trying to um, jogging in the morning,
1: for instance, as you said, or doing
0: homework. Certainly. Um, Well, one thing that I I I think I think that you were asking about is like you know what are two different pieces of music in two different parts of the universe that share kind of my, my genotype. You know, I mentioned you you mentioned counterpoint. So so for example, you know, counterpoint is you know when you have Two or more melodies occurring at the same time, where they're both actually participating somewhat equally. Usually, the one on top is always a little bit more prominent, but as opposed to uh, you know a melody with a with a, just a set of chord uh, chord changes, just chords played on the guitar or the piano. So that's not counterpoint. So you know I mentioned Josquin des or Bach. This is this is an era that really um, you know was all about counterpoint, but it also explains why i love the beatles because the beatles loved a lot of great counterpoint in the vocal or Crosby, stills nash or queen right or uh, uh you know it's, it's obviously so many that you know it's 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 they're different you know styles and they have different different aspects but the fact that i love both of them it's not only because of the use of counterpoint but that could be something um yeah I mean I was just I just took a vacation uh, with my wife up to one of our favorite places which is in way Northern California and the and the avenue of the Giants if you know where that is just a little south of Eureka and this ancient redwood groves and um, maybe a bit historically but I was we were kind of riding our bikes and I would put my my uh, my earbuds in and that music just for me really speaks um for like music from the middle ages. There's just something very timeless about that music. It operates again with different, it's a modal uh, discourse as opposed to tonal. Um, And it just seems like it, you know, the, 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 the trees are kind of, you know, singing that same, you know, from the same, you know, songbook. And then sometimes, you know, it would go into like, you know, some Lee Morgan, you know, some hard bop jazz. (laughs) And it would just like, I love this song, you know, but I just, you know, Sidewinder, but I, it's just, doesn't go here. So, um, you know, in a different context, if I was, you know, playing music, you know, for a dinner party, the medieval music would be like totally wrong. And people would look me like, look at me like I was from Mars, where a sidewinder, people would like, you know, yeah, sit back in their chair and tell me a good story. So... Um, context really is, is, is key. And, and, this, you know, it's important for us to recognize it because we don't want to hear something it doesn't necessarily mean we don't, we don't love it. I mean, even a genre that I, you know, am not a huge fan of, let's say like disco, there are contexts when, you know, a disco song would be just like, you know, a great ABBA song would be the best thing that I could possibly hear. Uh, so, you know, to recognize the importance of context.
1: That's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Nolan Gasser about his 2019 book, Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste, published by Flatiron Books. And, uh, uh Nolan, you had pointed out that it's an imprint of Macmillan. So I, I'm introducing Correct. it as Flatiron.
0: But... That's fine. It's both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Flatiron you, is terrific.
1: As I said, the subtitle of your book is The Science, and as you said, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. Um, so we've touched on the science um, quite a bit. so what what is what do you mean by culture in particular?
0: Right well, as I've um, you know written the book and have done a bunch of you know speaking engagements and you know especially kind of concert lectures, uh, what I often end up really focusing on because it's so graspable and it's I think really, Pleasurable for people to uh, take in is understanding that cultural dimension. So, you know, I break it in the book into basically those that the top line are overarching cultural background so this kind of explains the kinds of scales uh that we will hear as you know normal the kinds of meters or time signatures that we will be able to easily you know uh you know lock into the certain kinds of instruments uh that will sound normal to us um certain kinds of melodic uh approaches um, uh, that will again, be very normal so that when he, when we hear something, even if it's something we've never heard before, uh, it's, you know, we're, we're going to find a way to resonate with it. That kind of technical term is enculturation. Uh, so as we are – and it's really fascinating. There's been a lot of amazing uh, work done by, you know, musical music psychologists looking at, for example, infants. And the idea is that really in that first, say, six months uh, to a year of life, we really are kind of a blank slate. Um, you can play for a, a, an infant, you know, music from – you know, an infant, you know – born in, you know, in California, and you can play them music from India or music from China or music from Africa uh, in those first three months. And then if you kind of break the rules in terms of the kinds of scales, the kinds of, uh, you know, rhythms, the baby will, will likely, you know, notice and kind of, you know, turn their head because they're just able to kind of process it. Um, They're not yet enculturated into a particular, they're not limited into the kinds of musical discourse. It's a little bit similar to language. We all have the innate ability to speak any language, right? We have that... um, that functionality uh, that's capable, but as we as we grow and we hear other people talking, we we learn to speak English, and then at a certain point, if we learn French, we're going to speak it with an accent, and so it really is very much akin to that. That in really by the end of the first year, and especially by the end of the second year, the musical language that we're inculturated to uh, gets a little bit locked. And so the the scales and the rhythms and the meters and the uh, and the tim- timbres, uh, instrumental timbres that we hear, um, it, you know, after you know within those first two years, that really will be what is normal for us. And if we hear music of you know of another nature, it'll especially especially as we're older in our teens and our twenties and beyond, we may still like it, but we're going to be hearing it with an accent. Um, and it's just like, you know, so we'll understand it, but we won't fully understand it the way that somebody who was. Is- native to that culture. So if we listen to, I love music from India uh, and from North Africa, but, you know, I was not enculturated to those, to those music. Now I've spent a lot of time listening to it. So I've broken maybe a little bit into uh, that, you know, it's almost like really studying a foreign language and you work on your accent, but I, I'm still never going to hear it like somebody who's born there. So, so much of our, the point being is that so much of our taste, what we like, It doesn't mean that you're not going to like music from Bali uh, or from Turkey, but if it's going to sound different, it's going to sound quote unquote weird if you're not used to it. And when you hear something weird, your first instinct is not to like it. So um, that's kind of part of it. Um, The second dimension of culture is what I call intraculture, and I think I'm sort of trying to coin that term. I don't think it's really caught on yet, but (laughs) uh, you know, the call, I, I mean, I didn't really like the term and I explain in the book why I don't use subculture or um, you know, some other terms. It really is the culture within the culture. Right. And so we're all parts of many, many different sub, you know, different intracultures um, based on region. So we're all, you know, Many of your listeners here are American, and so we come. We we have that you know overarching enculturation to Western, and of course, I could really go on and get lost talking about Amer- the American culture. Which let me just say very quickly is also unique because it is a a marriage between Western or European traditions and African practice, and it is really what makes American music. Uh, something that I really go through in my in my concerts and lectures, um, the idea of improvisation being such an a, an integral part of rock and jazz, uh, the idea of the kind of the, the you know the blues inflection of the you know of the dominant seventh chord to get technical as not just being a dissonance that needs to be resolved but being an actual landing place really comes out of a of an African um, or certainly some early. Ma- Unique kind of mixture between Western and African practice um, and you know antiphonal back you know call and response things. so these are all things that are normal and unique to the American in, you know musical culture and you know I think in in some ways are part of why western music, rock and roll, and jazz have been such international successes is because of this unique blend but but beyond that, we then have we come from different parts of the country. Uh, we come in from different religious backgrounds, different, you know, racial and ethnic backgrounds, uh, different genders, obviously, and, and uh, different eras, different time periods that we grow up in, and different, you know, you know, groups that we hang out with, different hobbies, and all of those things play a big role uh, in giving us access, permission, um, introduction to music that forms a big reason why, We we like what we like and why and why we don't like if something is part of a of an intraculture that it's like the you know, like the the rival team, you're just going to hate that song, right? The the rival high school, their theme song is whatever it is, Uh, you know, you're going to hate it (laughs) because it's not your it's not your intraculture.
1: Then we can get into uh, uh, drums as, a, a, as an ancient embodiment of violence. And,
0: but, uh, <laughs> right, so exactly. So it's, so it's,
1: that's someone else's scholarship. Right. <laughs> but, but it sounds like, um, just to, to keep on this point just a little bit, for those of us who are, uh, as you write, incultured in American musical culture, that all of the American styles, from jazz to ragtime to rock to soul to hip hop, um, to uh, you know uh, that they're um, that we're in we're all, we're automatically or already enculturated to uh, to hear them as a positive, or or am I misreading what you're
0: saying? Well, you know, I to a certain degree, no, th- that that's right. I mean, it's the the way that you're enculturated into a musical style is not by studying it by going to school. It's simply by having your ears on right you know so you 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 go to the dentist office you you know you go to the grocery store you're in the elevator you're um you're driving in the car with your friend uh, you you go to a concert you go to a you know a, a a show all of especially in our formative years up until about age 12. You know, all of that becomes really part of our default language. So if you grow up in a if you grew up in New York City and you're exposed to a lot of diversity, so you you know you your parents drag you to a you know a symphony concert, and then your your you know cool uncle takes you to a jazz show, and then you you and your friends go go to a hip hop you know a bar, uh, and you go to rock, you know. So then you're just going to be exposed and your different cultures and and your exposure is going to be such that all of those are kind of normal. They do all participate in these overarching American, if you will, uh, musical language. So that's why they're all pretty easy to kind of acclimate to, to enculturate to. But I'll give you one other example. Uh, One language, one musical style you did not mention in the list is country music. And um, so country music and I've, I've increased, I've, I increasingly think this, Um, I I was born and raised in, you know, in kind of urban Southern California, right? So uh, there weren't, it's not a real place where a lot of country music is played. Um, So obviously I heard some, I mean, I heard Johnny Cash and, you know, and, and, you know, and uh, Hank Williams and, you know, and all that and Garth Brooks, you know, later. And, uh, but it just, it was never really my music. Uh, And so one of the, one of the tendencies when, when a music, you know, hip hop can be another, if you're not steeped in it can be an, uh, where you kind of, you'll listen to it and you'll say, yeah, it all sounds the same. You know, yeah they, they, you know, they're all, they're all talking about the same thing and they all kind of use the same, even music musicologically, I'll use kind of similar chord chord progressions, but what's, what's not happening with that listener who says it all sounds the same is they have not been enculturated on that subcultural level on that intracultural level in that kind of subtle nuance that slight turn of of a lyric phrase or the slight you know uh, j- melodic gesture or the certain kind of progression maybe it's the same three chords but the order that they're or the or the rhythmic placement these kinds of things that <clears throat> if you're not really attuned to it you'll you'll kind of hear it it won't you won't really necessarily hear it with an accent, but you're not going to really comprehend the kind of the nuance and that distinction and the real kind of the magic that can happen. Um, You know, and similar for a country, you know, someone raised in Nashville uh, or in, you know, in in Georgia, uh, not steeped in rock and roll will, you know, not, you know, or, what or, or classical, you know, will not, you know, dig it. Um, and we'll say it all sounds the same again, because they're, they're not, they haven't been acclimated to that kind of nuance. And partly is like, you know, taking the time, you know, saying, okay, I, you know, I know there's some great, you know, country music. I'm going to, you know, make an effort to really explore and teach myself, you know, a little bit the history, you know, going back to Bob Wills and bluegrass and, and see what's happening now. And, doesn't mean that you'll end up loving it. You still may not, but you'll, uh, you know, you, you may find some gems in there that become part of your musical genotype.
1: Friends in low places. <laughs> right. <I might> say. <laughs> um, so let's uh, pivot to some more of um, uh, the, the mature uh, mind. Uh, uh, since we, we've talked a lot about inculturation at this point, um, I'm wondering Um, to what extent are our adult musical tastes, our uh, our new choices of music as adults, or that is to say the the things we listen to in addition to what you've already said, what role do you think nostalgia plays in that? Well,
0: it plays a huge role um, because you're right, the music um, that we listen to when, uh, and that we kind of grow up with, that we listen to in our teen years uh, ends up, uh, in our youth because has such I- incredible power, you know, me, the music that we listen to when we're in our, you know, te- early teens, uh, you think about, you know, who we are in those, in those years, we're, we're, f- we're starting to separate our, ourselves a little bit from our parents, you know, we're not totally free, but uh, for, you know, from their influence, but, you know, we're starting to develop who we are. And so music has always had that power of identity. Uh, bringing people together, but also you know segregating people. So the music that you listen to uh, and that you fall in love with when you are 12, 13, 14 almost just gets embedded in your brain because it really becomes part of your liberation, right? You know, this is the story, this is your soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And so even 30 years later, uh, you may not love the song, you may see it as a little bit, you know, kitsch or whatever, but it's still going to have that resonance in you because it did play as opposed to a song that you heard, you know, 10 years later, um, won't have that same kind of resonance. And we really see that in the research of, um, you know, elderly people who are beginning to have memory and uh, other kinds of neurological issues where, They perhaps, you know, in in advanced Alzheimer's can't really remember much of anything, but you start playing a song that they knew in their teens and early 20s, those formative years, and they'll know every note, they'll know every lyric, um, and oftentimes that will kind of, you know, make them kind of come alive again, reopen some of those synapses Mm -hmm. Uh, alive inside is, you know, wonderful documentary that's talked about that. Um, And so there is definitely something about the music that we, that we grow up with. And so you can, you know, it's, it is nostalgia, but it's not just like looking back at the, you know, the good old days. It really, I think it's even deeper than that, that it's kind of, it's music that's tied in, um, with our with our uh, very, uh, with our very identity, which is yeah. not to say that you can't discover along the way in your thirties, your forties, your fifties, sixties. Really, I think at any era, at, at any age, you can find music that suddenly becomes a part of your identity, your your growing identity, your evolving identity, your more mature identity. Um, but still can have you know a place in that kind of hall of fame. But there again there's something unique about those those really early years
1: thank you so out of the music genome project came pandora is pandora do you think a natural ex- extension of earlier distribution methods like the jukebox or the columbia record and tape club or does it represent something truly revolutionary
0: Well, it's funny that you say the jukebox, because when we first were, you know, formulating the idea back in the Savage Beast days, uh, you know, one of the things that I kind of recognize is that we had the ability to do was to move beyond the album. Uh, you know, back in the you know in the fifties in the jukebox era, uh, you could put a you know a, a nickel or whatever it was <laughs> into the jukebox, mm-hmm. and you could hear just an individual song. And you could hear this song, and then I want to hear that song, and then hear that song. So, by virtue of really being able to connect individual pieces of music together. You'd not just, you know, comparing this album to that album or this artist to that artist, but this song to that, art, to that song, you could really go from the album to this level of the song. Now, I don't think any of us recognized in the early days that this would really be such a, a revolution. But you think of where we are, uh, and I have conversations all the time. I won't say that the album is dead, um, but it's really, it's just kind of almost a convenient, you know, distribution, you know, sort of vehicle. It Mm -hmm. really is the song um, that people download, that people stream, that people, you know, have a YouTube video that they watch. Um, And there's no doubt that Pandora played a role wasn't certainly not by itself, but played a role in returning to the individual sort of musical utterance um, and being able to, you know, focus on that and where the album is, uh, is, is less, uh, less vital. And of course, what, when it became Pandora in 2004, and thanks to the success of the iPhone and the, you know, good timing, um, then suddenly internet radio became Uh, the way that we could listen to music we didn't just listen to need to listen to music by you know putting on an album or putting a cd in our car we could actually and of course we all we, we do it all the time whether it's pandora or spotify and um you know that's another topic we can come back to but um it's amazing how many you know that's how people do myself included how we really consume I've got you know more CDs, than I would care to admit, but when I'm listening to music, it's usually via internet radio, uh, and usually, pan- of course, it's almost always Pandora. Um, so uh, I do think uh, it has in in several ways, both as inter- in returning to that kind of single, but then also as a di- as a distribution uh, mechanism, as you say, uh, through internet radio. Uh, you know, there would be no Spotify if there wasn't, you know, Pandora before it. So, mm-hmm. you know, the whole streaming and, you know, YouTube is obviously part of that, too. Um, but it's it was definitely, you know, those early years of the 21st century were, uh, you know, pretty, uh, you know, sort of altering in the way that that music is consumed and, and produced.
1: So I suppose I'm a little bit of a Luddite in that I. Um, I I just put everything on my Samsung music app and I alphabetize it by song title (laughs) and then then I just press play and stop and play.
0: Yeah. Well, I I hate to tell you, David, but you're definitely a little bit uh, of a unique character. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very, very labor intensive. So my, 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 uh, my, my, my congratulations on achieving that.
1: Thanks. Um, Uh, Dr. Nolan Gasser, what are you working on now?
0: Ah, man. Um, a lot of things, um, too, too many sometimes. Well, I, I did mention I'm working on this new company, uh, which is called catch with a K, which is, uh, really taking a lot of learnings that I've, um, developed, uh, with my Pandora experience, um, and applying, but, but also a lot of things that are quite different, but applying them. Uh, to the television and film industry. And uh, so I am a co-founder of that company, which is really quite thriving at the moment and I think has an opportunity to change uh, aspects of that media world in in ways not unlike the way that Pandora altered um, the, the music industry. Um, you know, I won't go too much deeper into that, but that's certainly something that takes uh, a good bit of my time, including having, you know, uh, this very vibrant intern program of these wonderful college um, uh, film and television students uh, coding films and, and television shows. Um, beyond that, I'm working still on several um, composition projects. Uh, One of the coolest projects I'm working on now is uh, for a musical playground structure. So there is a wonderful organization called Magical Bridge in uh, Palo Alto, uh, California, and they have developed these you know, playgrounds that are very, that are perfectly accessible by all levels uh, of, you know, physical ability and cognitive ability, uh, you know, the way that normal playgrounds are are often not. And they commissioned me to uh, conceive of a musical structure. So uh, I'm collaborating with, you know, people in the kind of the um uh, you know sort of um in the AI world as well as the uh you know kind of um c- you know construct and engineering kind of side of things um to actually build these we call it the, the the musical bridge and I'm writing a bunch of individual pieces of music that will be able to be interactive uh with people in you know coming to the structure by touching things, kicking things, hitting things with mallets and so forth and participating and thereby changing the music in a way that AI can. So it's a really a pretty cutting edge thing. Um, the first the first uh, manifestations is going to be in two playgrounds in Singapore. Uh, actually, in in a couple of years, uh, maybe next year or early 23. And so that's that's something. I've got a Broadway-bound musical, as I mentioned. Um, So it's called Benny and June. Uh, We are, uh, you know, knock on wood, on our way to, um, you know, either a London production or a a New York production in the next uh, six months or so. Um, I've got an opera, which is going to, you know, is still getting performances and um, and then I've got an album that uh, I recorded back in right as the (laughs) basically finished the tracking right as the pandemic uh, uh, took hold. Uh, The album is called Border Crossing and this. In many ways, is kind of a metaphor to who I am. It's, it's a real mix of styles, um, everything from North African to Turkish to uh, Senegalese to Celtic to uh, Andalusian, uh, and mixing that with kind of rock and jazz kind of uh, elements. Got an incredible band. We're called the, the uh, um, Mighty Mighty. And so the album is going to be coming out, uh, you know, starting going to be releasing singles in the spring and start hopefully touring shortly thereafter. So that's, that's definitely a a big one. Uh, So that's, (laughs) that's at least some of the projects I've got going on. (laughs) No
1: shortage of work for you. Right. Can our listeners follow you on Twitter?
0: Uh, Uh, You know, you would think that they could. Um, I just, I, I do have a Twitter account. Um, I'm, I guess, I'm just um, not uh, an, an, a, a very avid user, um, and it's not, you know, it's not like I have a, a real, you know, philosophical uh, issue with it. I do get that one needs to communicate um, uh, with, uh, you know, with others, and especially if you have a platform as a as an artist, for example. Um, And so I have gone back and forth in being active and not so active. I haven't been active lately. Twitter keeps asking me what's going on. Where have I gone? Um, So maybe I will um, get back into it. Um, But I do have, uh, I've got a website, nolangasser.com. And so you can reach out to me there um, and you can shoot me an email, nolan at nolangasser.com. I usually try to respond to any questions. And uh, so as probably more thorough way of finding out what's on my mind. But, <laughs> but I will try to, uh, you know, maybe you're, you're motivating me to get back uh, in, into, into social media.
1: Well, uh, in regard, as regards your Broadway and or West End show, Break a
0: Leg. Thank you. Uh,
1: Dr. Nolan Gasser, author of Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste from Flatiron Books 2019. Uh, Nolan, thank you so much.
0: You're quite welcome. Thank it's been great David. Thank you.